Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see you all this morning. For those that may not know me, my name is Cody King, and I'm the campus pastor here in Edgewood. And it is a joy to be able to share in God's Word with you, as always, uh, especially this morning as we're kicking off a new series, As You See, Spiritual Warfare. I would like to take a moment to welcome those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Wills Point as well. We're glad that we're, you're spending time with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, you'll go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. Um, I'm not going to read that just yet, but just so you can be getting there. Um, uh, this text is going to form kind of the foundation of where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. Uh, so I encourage you to, to stick with this. I'm looking forward to our time this morning, but, but you can take time and be reading ahead and looking ahead at the text. As we talk about spiritual warfare, um, and Paul begins to lay out for us our response to that, um, you can go ahead and be reading on what that looks like, and we will be talking about it as we go. But as we begin, I want to start by asking uh, a question of you. For you to consider this real quick is, who is your enemy? If you were to think about for that for a moment, if you think about someone in your life, it could be a person, right? it could be a thing, an object, and somebody, well, well, you know, your arch nemesis. If you think about that, who might that be? You know, could it be the copier at work, maybe? You know, for me, sometimes a tube of caulk, you know, I don't know if you've ever done any painting, but me, when I see a tube of caulk, I'm like, oh, my old arch nemesis, the tube of caulk, because I'm not good at it, right? It becomes my enemy. You know, the copier at work in the office uh, over at the main campus, um, we just got a new one, praise the Lord, um, for those that are on staff and come and go and use the old one. Um, it, is, it is the enemy, that thing. You know, you'd walk in and Amber would be like, hey, the printer's doing this, can you help? I'd throw my, my tech support cape on, you know, and I would stand in front of this thing and push the buttons and all the things, and it still wouldn't work. But oftentimes when we think of an enemy, we think of something that is temporal. We think of something that is, that is in the here and now, something that we interact with, something that's tangible that would harm us in some way. Most times we think of an enemy simply as someone we do not like. But the reality is, is that there is an enemy that does not live in the natural world. There's an enemy that exists that, that cannot physically touch us there's an enemy that we don't physically see. And the reality is, is that he is our public enemy, number one. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read starting in verse 10. In just a couple of verses this morning, Paul says, he says, Finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I want to point out here, just give a little bit of context for us real quick. Paul says, finally, right? He, this is chapter 6 of his letter that he's written to the Ephesians. And he says, finally, he's concluding what he's written to this church. So for context, if we kind of look back and recap in a way quickly uh, his letter to the Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out for the believer, for the church, 
what our position is in Christ. Who Christ is, why God sent him, that he gave his life for us, that when we come and we put our faith in him, we're justified by him, we receive his spirit as a seal, our position changes from chapter 2, being dead in our trespasses and sins, to now being alive in Christ. So as our position changes in chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins to tell us, now that your position has changed, that your position is in Christ, this is how you should respond. This is what your life should look like. Is You should no longer walk in the manner in which you used to walk. You should walk in wisdom, walk in the like, walk in freedom in Christ, but we then need to pay attention how we walk. We need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He lays out for us how we're to interact and what our relationship should look like in our household, what a relationship should look like in a workplace. And as we come and go under heaven, in light of our position in Christ, this is how we're to respond. And he comes here to chapter 6 now, and he says, finally, if all that is true, if you have now, your position is in Christ, you're beginning to walk in a way that glorifies the Lord, you're walking away from this world, what Paul lays out here is now you're going to encounter opposition in the progress of that. As you pursue the Lord and you seek to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, Ephesians chapter 4, you are going to encounter opposition. So he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the reality is public enemy number one, he is not flesh and blood. We battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers in this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have a real enemy. Now this morning, I want to lay the foundation for where we're going in the next several weeks as we talk about spiritual warfare, but I want us to come away this morning understanding that we have a real enemy and who that enemy is and some of the ways in which he seeks to derail the believer's walk in Christ and to keep us in a place of darkness if he can. But what is he not? Right, popular culture, we have this image often of the enemy that's not realistic. Right? We, have, we have this being, this image of a being that's red, he's got horns, he's got a tail, and he carries around a pitchfork. But it's not the image of the enemy. Right? He's not a team mascot. Right? He's not a red devil, he's not a blue devil. He's not a demon that we go play on a Friday night at a game. Right? He's not any other marginalized or commercialized depiction that we have of him today. In many, many ways, I would think the early church, if they were to see the image that we've created the devil to be, they would be appalled at the way in which we've lessened his impact. We've lessened the reality of who he is and what he seeks to do. But what does Scripture say about who he is? I'm going to run through a list here. It's, it's a rather, I would say, exhaustive list, but just stick with me as I read this. Um, tomorrow, if you have our... if you connect with uh, our Stone Point News. My notes will be there, and you can have this list for yourself if you go there to get that. So what does Scripture say about who he is? Well, he is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. He's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's the prince of demons, Luke eleven fifteen. 15. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44. 
He's the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the evil one. He's the ancient serpent. He's the dragon in Revelation 12.9. He's Abaddon. He's Apollyon in Hebrew and the Greek, which means the destroyer in Revelation 9.11. He was at one point, get this, was at one point the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That is a description of what he was. So when we think real quick about the image that's created oftentimes in our culture of this red being with fangs and horns and and all of these things and claws, at one point a description of this being is that he was the signet of perfection. Think through that for a minute. This is a description of Satan. Signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 28, 14, he's the guardian cherub. Look at what verse verse 15 says. It says that he was blameless in his ways from the day he was created until what? It says until unrighteousness was found in him. He is Lucifer. He's the day star. This is an angel masquerading in light. He is Satan, the accuser in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, you don't have the image of Satan that you have in the New Testament, but he is the Satan, which means the accuser. He's one that accuses God's people. He's the devil, Diabolos. It's the slanderer. He's the adversary, the tempter. He is the enemy. How is he described? He's described as a liar, as a deceiver, an accuser. He's crafty and cunning. He's evil, wicked, unrighteous, and unholy. In every way. We have a real enemy. And this enemy exists. So with reality of such an enemy, what are we to do? As the church, as believers, if if we begin to wrap our minds around that concept, that we believe the truth, that there is an enemy that exists that we do not see in a spiritual realm that we don't see and physically take part in, what are we to do? 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter tells us to be sober-minded. He says, be watchful. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If we have an enemy that we cannot see, that we can't physically engage with, what are we to do against such an enemy? Peter says, we are to be sober-minded. That means to be calm. It's to be collected in spirit to be temperate or dispassionate. Then he says to be watchful. That's to be vigilant. The word means to, to keep awake, to be spiritually alert of his presence, be spiritually alert and aware of what he will do, what he seeks to do, how he seeks to do it. So like watchmen on our post, we need to be aware of the enemy's tactics. So for a watchman on his post, real quick, if, if we think through this, if we if we're to be sober-minded, to stay awake, to be watchful, and we're to stand on the ramparts, and we're to look out across the wall into the field, and we're to look for the enemies working, whenever the enemy shows himself, what does that watchman do? Does he come down off that wall, grab his sword, his, sword, his bow, and his shield, and run out there himself and meet the enemy? No. That watchman alerts who? His commanding officer. The role of the watchman is to be sober-minded. He is to be watchful. And when he sees the enemy, he makes 
the troops, he makes his commander aware of the enemy's presence. But then instruction comes from his authority. It doesn't come from his own self. Think through that. When we think about the enemy, it's if, an, if it's an enemy that is crafty, he is cunning, and we're going to get to some ways in which he would sway God's people, what some of his goals are. But if we think of our role as being watchmen, what is it that we are supposed to do? Are we to engage with the enemy? Are we to go out there and look to slay the enemy? Are we to tell our commanding officer of his presence and look for instruction on how to move forward? But just keep that in mind as we walk through this and we'll land, uh, land back in that spot here as we wrap up. So what is his goal? If we're to be aware of his tactics, what would some of those tactics be? What is the goal of the enemy? One would be, for certain, to distort God's truth. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. At the beginning, whenever the enemy stepped in, look at what he did and how he does it. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he initially does. He engages with Eve, and he asks her a question. But in this question, he begins to sow doubt and uncertainty within her to get a response out of her. In verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the, tr- of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, for a moment, if we were to analyze what happens here in this short exchange between the serpent and Eve, what happens? Is it the serpent, that the enemy tells her a lie? He tells her a truth? He tells her what you could say, maybe a half-truth, and then another truth. But he disguises his his manipulation of God's word with truth and with lies. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That is a lie. The lie is that they wouldn't die, but what happens? Whenever they eat of the fruit, death comes, right? Death becomes the penalty. We know from Romans chapter 5 that in Adam, the penalty for our sin is in fact death. So he lied. Verse 5, for God knows that you will eat it, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Well, that's the truth. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knew that when they eat of that tree, their eyes will be open. That is a truth. Here's a half-truth, and you will be like God. And here's where the human heart begins to really take its dive. Is that the enemy lied to Eve. Then he told her a truth, and now he tells her a half-truth. He says, you're going to be like God. Adam and Eve became like God in the sense that the last truth he says is that they knew, they now had a knowledge of good and evil. But they were never meant to have that knowledge, and they couldn't fully grasp that knowledge. And it brought about a penalty because they disobeyed God's command. But the enemy lied. He tricked, he duped Eve into believing, I'm going to be like God. Yes, you are going to be like God, but you're not going to be like God in the sense that he was trying to sell it to her. 
So he disguises, he distorts God's truth and he manipulates God's command. And he tricks us into believing something that is not the reality. And then we give in to that thing that he dangles out in front of us. In our day and age, there's such a thing called progressive Christianity, which isn't Christianity at all. But there are some progressive Christians that go to this text right here and they invert God's truth. Is they would attempt to sell to people that the enemy, that the serpent is the one telling the truth and God becomes the liar. And that the serpent said, you're not surely going to die. The fact that Adam and Eve didn't die on the spot, they would argue is that God lied. They ate, they did not die. Therefore, the serpent is the truth teller and God is the one duping mankind into not eating something that he tempted them with. But as a wicked teaching, it's a distortion of God's truth that exists today and it's a way in which the enemy would seek to warp the minds of people, which leads me to the second goal of the enemy. First is to distort God's truth. Number two is to blind the hearts of unbelievers. He wants to keep confusion around who God is. Romans 1, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thinking is they began to believe lies, believe things that didn't exist, believe things that were not true, and it confused their image of, the image of God and who they believe God to be. And he seeks to keep them from recognizing their need for him as well. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he's blinded them. He's, he's, he's tricked them They've into thinking in futility, not seeing the truth of who God is. And to keep them from recognizing their need for him. For the enemy, this is a very easy thing to do in our day and age. And even for the believer can be tricked into this thing to not see our need for him every day. A word for that is materialism. Right? In our culture... We're a wealthy culture among the world. We're in the top 1%. The poorest of poor in the United States of America is still vastly more wealthy than the rest of the world. And that's a reality that exists. We don't feel it quite the same way. But it's materialism that the enemy will use to keep us in a place of not recognizing our need for God. Is that he can provide everything that we need. We got cell phones, we got house, we got clothes on our backs, we've got food in our belly. We have all these things. We don't need God. Why is it more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to go through the eye of a needle or a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's because he has everything he needs. Whenever the Lord goes to the rich young ruler, how do I follow you? Well, you need to let go of everything that you have and come and follow me. He's like, ooh, I don't know if I can give up all that stuff. But that is a lie of the enemy to keep people from recognizing the, their need for Lord. So the second goal is to blind the hearts of unbelievers. The third thing is, is to destroy the work of the ministry of God's people. To destroy the work of ministry in God's church. And he does this in several different ways. We'll look at a handful of them. Number one is by temptation. By temptation. The way he destroys the work of ministry in God's church is by temptation. James 1 uh, verse 13 and 14, James tells us, he says, let, 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So we know first and foremost that God is not the tempter. For God cannot be tempted with evil, he says, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, now you may say, well, Cody, you just said that that the enemy is the one doing the tempting. Here James says that he's tempted by his own desire, which is true. But look further at what James says in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So we're not tempted by God, but we're experiencing temptation. It's from our own desire, but that desire is rooted in our sin, and the one that tickles that little sinful button for whatever that desire may be would be the enemy. For he says, where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exists in your hearts, he says that it's not wisdom that comes from above. If it's not wisdom that comes from above, it comes from somewhere else. And he says that it is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. When you and I, when our hearts desire our own ambition, whenever we begin to pursue things that we desire, if everyone in this room started doing things that served only ourselves, there would be absolute disorder and chaos and every vile practice is what he says. And that is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. The reality is, is think through that. Whenever we seek to serve ourselves and not look to the needs of other people, that there's a spirit at work against us, and it is earthly, unspiritual, and again, demonic. So it's temptation that the enemy will use to thwart the work of God's people. But recall from before, look, go back to Genesis chapter 3. I thought this just this morning as I was reviewing my notes, but what was Eve's first mistake? Eve's first mistake was that she engaged in the conversation in the first place. The enemy asked her a question and his temptation ensued. And she responded and she engaged. Again, what is the purpose and what is the role of the watchman? The watchman is not to engage with the enemy. He's to alert the troops of its presence. Second way that he would thwart the work of God's people is by false teaching. First John chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Uh, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So, He's telling you to test the spirits, but you need to know that a differentiation exists, that there are spirits that would deny Christ, such as the Antichrist, and there are spirits that would proclaim Christ. That's how you discern the difference between spirits. But he says, little children, you are from God. You have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we test the spirits, but there's going to be false teachers that exist, that are present, Within our day. And a big trouble about that today is contrary to back before the digital age, false teaching did exist, but now we have the digital age. 
If God's people are not careful, they'll go to YouTube instead of assembling together. But instead of learning to test the spirits, they will go to YouTube and listen to a false teacher spin and distort God's truth and dupe them into believing lies about who God is, about who they are, and their role within the body. And they will sit on a bed or in a chair at home every single week, and they will take in lies from the enemy instead of stepping out and becoming a part of God's church and receiving truth. And they'll never be told to test and approve. My desire for you, and I think I can speak for Brandon as our senior pastor, as he teaches, my desire is not that you would take what I say and believe it because I said it. My desire is that you would take what I say as a preacher of God's word, trust that my heart is positioned before the Lord, and I'm seeking to honor him and convey his truth. But I would ask that you would take what you hear from my mouth and you would test it against God's word. But church, if there is an unwillingness to do this, I do desire that you would trust me in my teaching, the teaching that the Lord has given me. I promise you, I've spent a lot of time in prayer on this specific teaching. I can tell you that the enemy has tried to position my heart against this teaching. I didn't finish this teaching until yesterday afternoon. Sitting at a table in the dining room, my mother-in-law comes in, you're still working? And I say, yes. Because the enemy would seek to damage and destroy God's word in the proclamation of it by false teaching but we should test and approve but another way that he would thwart the ministry of God's church is by creating doubt and fear he will use any situation of uncertainty he will prey on any negative emotion of worry and anxiety he'll do that to paralyze the believer from walking in the freedom that they have in Christ he will also do it by stirring hatred against Christians you don't have to look far in our day, in our culture, to find hatred against the people of God. He'll use the prevailing winds of culture to, and the blinded hearts and minds of believers. He'll distort and twist God's truth to redefine words. He'll redefine morality so that when God's people would speak his truth, they become the ones who are viewed as immoral. When we proclaim God's truth as being in the light... Our culture today calls that now darkness. Being in the light is being your true self, but that is completely contrary to God's word. But when we proclaim that, we live in a culture now that the Christian is hated simply because they speak God's truth. And then there's persecution, there's oppression against that. And the voice of God is meant to be silenced in our culture today. He will stir up hatred against God's people in order to thwart the work of ministry. An example of that right now, as I pick up my Bible, as I turn to Genesis chapter 1 and I read to you verse 27. This is God's word. This is not Cody King speaking. This is God speaking. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him or created them. If I were to proclaim God's truth right now, that God created man and woman, he created male and female in his image, 
If I were to read that to you, if I were to go to chapter 2, and I will read for you, verse 23 and 24. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she is taken out of a man. Then he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If I were to read to you God's word, the truth of God's word, and proclaim the truth that exists, that a man exists, that a woman exists, that a woman cannot become a man, and a man cannot become a woman that they too will leave their father and mother. They won't leave their mother and mother and be joined together. They won't leave their father and father. They will leave their father. They will leave their mother. They will be joined together in one flesh. If I proclaim that truth right now, there is a chance that YouTube will shut down this stream for proclaiming that truth. But if we're careful, we will make an enemy of the algorithm at Google shutting such a thing down but the reality is is it's google's not our problem youtube is not our problem the people that sat behind and would sink to silence the proclamation of god's word is not our problem they are not our enemy our enemy is satan he is our adversary adversary he is our accuser and he is the one that is stirring this hatred and is seeking to silence god's people and one last way that he would seek to thwart the work of God's people is by distraction. By keeping your focus on anything but the ministry of the gospel. If he can keep you at work, if he can keep you in your family, if he can keep your focus on your hobbies, if he can keep your focus on politics, if my heart, if my mind becomes too, so consumed, if I am more aware of what's going on in this election right now than I am for the Lord's ministry to my heart through his word and his people and his spirit, I am distracted. And that is the enemy. That is not to say that I shouldn't be aware of what's going on. I am to be a watchman. I should be so aware of what's happening in the election time in our country, but I should not be consumed by it to a point where I'm not focusing on the Lord and what he seeks to do in my heart. Else I will become distracted. Now the fourth goal of the enemy is also to influence nations into turmoil. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 12 and 14, this is... This is an interesting passage of Scripture. Um, follow me into this. I don't think this is a leap. I don't think where I'm going with this is, is out of the context of this. But in Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has this vision, and he, he's praying for understanding of this vision. For three weeks, he, he was in mourning over this vision. And then in 12... This angel appears before him. He has this image, and this image of this being puts him into a deep sleep. And then this, this being says to him, uh, in verse 12, he says, Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So Daniel has this vision, right? And he, he starts to seek understanding of this vision. At the beginning of chapter 10, it says that Daniel, for three weeks, was in mourning 
waiting for a response for three weeks. And now this angel says to him in this vision that the first day you set your heart on understanding, from the first day you humbled yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. But look at verse 13. He says this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, at this point in time, Persia is the ruler over God's people. They're in exile and the Persia's over them. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And he says, and I came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days. Did you catch what he just said? This is a spiritual being. This is an angel. Daniel has this vision. He prays for understanding. For three weeks, he's praying. This angel comes up. From the first day you prayed, it was heard. And the word went out that I would come to you. But he says specifically that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. How long ago was it that Daniel was in mourning? Three weeks. There is a spiritual battle taking place right now in our midst and around us. There is a spiritual battle taking place in this room. Don't believe the lie that these are the walls of the church and it's holy ground in some way that the enemy cannot penetrate these walls. That is a lie. I promise you the enemy is in this room seeking to close your heart off to the proclamation of God's word right now. And in this particular sense, an angel tells Daniel that from the moment you prayed, I was sent. But it took me three weeks to get here because the enemy resisted me coming. And it took an archangel, Michael, one of the chief princes, to come to my aid to help me get here to you to give you the answer. You see that picture? Church, that is, that is the battle that we're engaged in. It's being fought on our behalf. It's a battle for your soul. The reality is if you're in Christ, you have won. The battle is won, it is over. You are no longer under the authority of the ruler of this world. You're under the authority of the king of kings and the prince of princes, the one that would send the angel to Daniel in the first place. But the battle no less exists. But here's my point. If the last goal of the enemy is to influence nations into turmoil, here, look with me in verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. If there is a prince, if there is an evil spirit that is assigned to the nation of Persia, if he was left there with the kings of Persia, Persia, it stands to reason that in 2022, heading into 2023, that there is an evil spirit that is assigned to nations to lead these nations into turmoil. Now, there's always been difficulty. There's always been brokenness. There's always been infighting within the world and the people that exist here because of sin. But all of that is the enemy manipulating circumstances and manipulating people because he has distorted God's truth. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's duped them into saying they don't, they don't need God. They need what they want and they pursue their ends. And it's people in positions of authority believing those lies that lead nations into turmoil. America's enemy is not Vladimir Putin. America's enemy is the one behind that that's tricked him into believing lies and pursuing his own ends. So we should be praying daily for our nation. 
Absolutely, we should be praying for our nation. In two days' time, an election takes place that in many ways will determine a lot of the direction that our nation goes for at least the next two to four years. Praise the Lord, we live under a system that we can vote people and we can vote for change. But we should be praying for that. We should be praying for our leaders. But realize our enemy is not a Democrat. Our enemy is not a Republican. It's not a specific candidate that's in place. Our enemy is the accuser. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the destroyer. And we need to pray against him and pray for those that would be voted into positions of authority to lead people in God's ways, not more humanistic ways. So now, how does the enemy accomplish his goals? Well, he does that by praying on the most susceptible among us. He prays on those that are tired. He prays on those that are alone, isolated, those that are on the fringes, those who are young in the faith or those that are weak in the faith. He doesn't go for the strongest. He goes for the weakest. But if he can get the weakest to fall, he will use the weakest to break the strongest. Now, all this seems like bad news, but there is good news here, is that his authority is limited. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not everywhere all the time. His authority, his power is limited. His authority over this world was broken at the cross. When Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he defeated the enemy. The authority that we now have comes from the Lord. We're not under the authority of the enemy any longer. But he is also a created being. He had a beginning and he will have an end. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, were being, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Church, there will come a time where the enemy will be utterly defeated for eternity. And he will no longer have any sway over God's people. But until then, he exists and he will attempt to do these things. So what are you and I to do? Until then, we are to resist. Earlier, Peter told us to be sober-minded. He told us to be watchful. James 4, 7 says this. He says, resist the devil, the devil, and he will flee from you. But look with me at what he says first in that verse. Before it goes up there, it's already up there, but it's okay. But oftentimes I can even go there and I can quote that, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That does absolutely nothing for you and I if we don't do what James says in the first part of that verse, which is submit yourselves to God. Church, it is absolutely imperative that you and I submit ourselves to the one who is in authority over the enemy. Let me read with you real quick or read to you. I don't have this on the screen. This is what God did, then God worked in Christ Jesus in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, this is that what he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where did he seat him in verse 21? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is a description of Christ in victory. 
as head over all things. That is where we submit ourselves to. And when we submit ourselves there, then we have the power to not engage the enemy, but to simply resist him, and he will flee from you and I. Again, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, Peter even says, resist him, firm in your faith. Faith comes before resistance. If we're not firm in our faith, there's no resistance that we can stand on. But if we submit ourselves to God, stand firm in our faith, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And in the coming weeks, I'm excited. We're going to talk more practically and specifically on what it looks like to put on the whole armor of God. As we talk through how to resist the devil and what that looks like for the believer in the life of believer so that we would be victorious moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance. Amen? I'm looking forward to it. Don't skip out. Church, we have a real enemy and we need to believe that he exists, understand who he is and how he would seek to destroy us. The more knowledge we have of that truth, the more firmly we can stand as we submit ourselves to God. Let me me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your son. First and foremost, Lord, that you... Knowing our need, our absolute need, Lord, for you, our utter inability to save ourselves, our utter inability to, to withstand the schemes of the devil, that you sent your son, Lord, to take on that enemy, to allow that enemy to destroy him, to beat him, to crucify him, that he would humbly take on that from the enemy, that he would humbly take on your wrath for us and defeat that enemy, Lord, that we would have victory in him, that as we still exist and we still live on this earth, we still live in the dominion of the enemy that we can no longer be swayed by him if we would look to you, Lord. And I pray that that truth would fall on us. I pray for the coming weeks, Lord, that your people would come back, Lord, and would look to the teaching and proclamation of your word, Lord, for encouragement. But they would, we would dig in, not just for an hour or for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, Lord, that we would look to your word from today till next Sunday and thereon and thereon, Lord, for an understanding more deeply of your truth so that we will recognize whenever there are lies being spilled over us, Lord. That we'd find boldness, Lord, to stand firm and to resist the devil that he may flee from us. I pray that he would flee from me before he flees from everywhere else. If I would not engage with him, Lord, but trust you, Lord. And I pray that for all of us, Lord. For your glory, for our good, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, and love you for this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.